This is uh, one of those sections of the Bible when you're at the seminary and you read it and you study it and you say, I hope I never have to preach on that. And uh, for 25 years, I've successfully avoided this section of uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians uh, until this week. So uh, it's just one of those ones you just kind of look at and go, that's just uh, complicated and ugly. And if I just don't have to deal with that, everything would be fine. And here's what I learned as God made me deal with it this week. There's, there's nothing so ugly or so complicated that God won't deal with it himself in his mercy for us. And uh, that's, a, that's a, an enriching, rewarding thought. Um, and so there's nothing we have to be scared of either. There's nothing so complicated going on in your world. There's no sin so ugly or gross. Uh, there's no relationship too broken that God can't fix. And so that's the kind of God we have. So that, that, that's what I learned as I studied it this week. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning of verse 3, tell you some background, and we'll get going here. Here we go. God help me. Paul writes this, I, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of God in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm just going to say it. Sometimes church is a pain. But then there's this. There's the church that put up on their church sign. They wanted, obviously, they had good intentions. They wanted to help people learn about hell and, and teach the Bible doctrine of hell. So they put this on their church sign. Uh, Want to know what hell is like? Come and hear our preacher. <laughs> uh, we're not going to put that on our church sign. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why the church is a pain. And a lot of those reasons, I think, are the wrong reasons to consider the church a pain. But there are right reasons that the church is a pain. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with, with one of those right reasons in this section of, of 2 Corinthians. And so I'm going to read you his opening, opening words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, right? Beginning at verse 3. Paul, Paul says, I wrote as I did. So he's writing this letter to the Christian church in the, in the town of Corinth, in the city of Corinth. He's writing him a letter now. He's telling him, I, I, I wrote as I did. Now he's re referring to a previous letter when he says, I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, 
For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Uh, Those are just two of the first five verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, as Paul, the pastor of this church in Corinth, is writing to them. And in the first five verses of this early chapter, chapter 2, Paul uses the Greek word for pain seven times in five verses. As a matter of fact, in all of the Apostle Paul's writing, in the entire New Testament of the Bible, he uses the Greek word for pain 24 times. 18 of those 24 are in the book of 2 Corinthians. The church in Corinth was a pain. The church in Corinth was a problem church. Uh, It had, you read 1 Corinthians, and you're going to see there a list of of what problems are. I mean, and so the Apostle Paul was dealing with this pain in the church. You want to know what pain is? Come and hear the Apostle Paul. But it was real, and they needed to work on it, and so Paul was willing to do that. Uh, I believe there's lots of Lots of problems in churches all over, including ours. There's problems in any church. There's no church that's perfect. Uh, some of those are really worth dealing with, and, and others not so much. But I tell you what the biggest problem is. Well, sin is a big problem, but there's a bigger problem than sin. You know what that is? The biggest problem, even bigger than the problem of sin in the church, is not recognizing that sin is a problem and therefore not dealing with it, not doing something about it. It's like having pain and not managing your pain, all right? So the biggest pain in the church is sin, and so we have a process for dealing with that in the church, and that's what it's outlined now in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians. And that process, we we have a term for it. We call it church discipline, church discipline. So here's my question. Why is the process of church discipline so painful? And why is that painful process so necessary? There's really three answers in Paul's instructions to the Corinthians and us, and they relate not just to church, but to our daily lives as we deal with this problem. Everybody experiences pain, no matter how young or old you are, no matter how healthy or unhealthy you feel. Everybody experiences pain, and everybody experiences sin too. The biggest problem is thinking that we don't have pain, we don't have to deal with it, or that we don't have sin, we don't have to deal with it. But we do. And so that's why I love the church. We have a process in place. We have pain management, and it's called church discipline. Uh, So Paul outlines that for us. Before I get to the three steps, I I need to set the stage and tell you the background here a little bit. Um, So there is a sin that happened earlier. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians One of the members of the church in Corinth was guilty of a sin. And that sin was known by the church, and it was a terrible sin. Let me read you from the first letter to the Corinthians. This is Pastor Paul writing. He says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. He's he's like saying, this is bad. This isn't just the church being picky. This is like out in, the re- out in the world, this is even bad. Here it is. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. 
and you are proud, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Okay, so this is a case of incest in this church in Corinth. And it's real, and it's happening, and it's public, and they're not doing anything about it. That's the pain for Paul. And so, uh, Paul engages in this what, what really looks similar to an intervention process, right? If you got something going on in your family, and you have a brother or sister or a nephew or an uncle or a parent or a child engaged in hurtful, sinful behavior that's bad for them and others, and it's repeated, and you all know about it, at some point you approach them, maybe with an intervention of some kind, to say, this is dangerous, we love you, you need help, and there's help available. That's what church discipline does. Paul did that, and the church responded. The church responded, they, they called the guy to account, they finally responded, and so uh, now he's writing 2 Corinthians back to them. But here's the question, why is this painful process of church discipline so necessary and so important? There's three answers. First answer is here. It has to do with Satan. Satan is real. Jesus refers to Satan, also known as the devil, who is a real spiritual being, who has supernatural powers, and he's more powerful than any of our human powers. He could take any of us to the cleaners but with just our own powers against his. Uh, he's a real being, and, and he want, here's what he wants to do. Satan wants to take control and possession of your spirit and your soul, and he wants to torment you. He wants to kill you and take you to be in his prison of hell forever. If you want to just brush him off, if you want to just treat him like, like he's a fairy tale, like he's not real, but, but you tell, people tell stories about him, and he's got, you know, he wears red tights, and he has horns and a, and a hooked tail, and he carries a pitchfork. He, isn't that cute? And, and you just brush him off like he's the boogeyman. If you spend more time and attention on pest control for bugs in your house than the time and attention you spend really looking out for Satan in your life, he will find you, and he will torment you, and he will kill you, and he will take you to the prison of hell forever. He's a dangerous dude, and he's bad, and he wants to do all that. We need to face the fact that, that he's real and that the power of Satan is real, which is why Paul then writes, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So, when, when I sin, every single time that I sin, Satan is outwitting me. Sin is a choice. I'm making a choice that God doesn't want me to make, and that usually I don't want to make, but sometimes I do. I'm going to be honest in saying some sins are really nice. I like them, and I enjoy them, and that's bad. And that's Satan outwitting me, convincing me that, that that sin is okay and even pleasurable and good. So if he outwits me and I sin, 
how can, how can I face his deceits and lies and temptations? I can do that with you, my Christian friends around me, saying, Pastor Darren, don't do that. Don't touch the hot pan. That's going to burn you. Satan is convincing you that it's okay. And so, the first person who benefits from the church discipline process is the sinner. The, the person who sins needs a process in place of caring, loving people around them to intervene, to say, don't, don't touch the hot pan. Paul says we're not unaware of the devil's schemes. We can look at Genesis 3. We can look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We can read the Bible, and it tells us how, how Satan operates. When I sin, I kind of conveniently forget that. And others around me can come to me and say, understand how Satan works. Oh, yes, they remind me, and they can save me from sin. Uh, so if you say, I have such strong faith. I, uh, I know religion, and I don't need the church to help me. And you, you are like a spiritual lone ranger. You're not a lone ranger. You're a lone little lamb that the wolf, Satan, is going to prey upon first and fastest. People around you, the church, can help protect you as a sinner, and that's why the church discipline process is in place, because there's a group around us to help protect us, and that's the church, like a support group. All right, number two. So the church is together. We're, we're like a community. We're like a family. We're, we're like a team. Uh, Paul makes this point when he's referring to the sinful man in Corinth, again, he, he was a church member. The church knew about this sin, so it was public. Uh, and Paul writes this, that, that he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. When someone in the... The, the whole purpose of the church is to, is to conquer sin, is to fight against sin. And we're a... We're in unity of our faith. We're, we're in oneness like a family. So we have this circle of faith, this unity of faith. When a person in the church sin and it sins and it's known, I'm not talking about private sins. I'm not talking about sins you do in your home that nobody knows about. We're not, the church is not going to play detective. I don't have cameras installed in the homes of every new member of our church that you know of anyway. Um, so, right? so we're not out to play detective. But, but so this is talking about a sin that's known among the church group of people. When that happens, it breaks the circle. That sin breaks that unity of, of faith and, and of belief. And so the, the other entity who needs the process of church discipline to protect its integrity and strength is the church. The church needs it to keep together to keep its unity, to keep one. So the church must never ignore sin. Uh, the church, when, when Paul writes, right, I, I was writing to you hoping you could be obedient in everything. He's writing to the church in Corinth. He means, I, I hope that you engage in this process for the good of the sinner and for your good too. That's being obedient to God's word. All right, number three. Finally, Paul mentions a third reason the painful process of church discipline is necessary. He writes in, in verse 10, uh, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Who 
Who else is involved here? So far, we've seen that the sinner is involved. Satan is involved. The church is involved. And now the most important one. Right? When Paul, Paul says, in the sight of Christ, he's using a, a Greek phrase there that literally means before the face of. The Greek words mean be, before the face of Jesus Christ. All right? And that's translated elsewhere in the Bible with words like uh, in the presence of, or even um, with the approval of, right? Before the face of, it means a person is there, face to face, looking on. So, who else is involved here? Jesus Christ himself is involved in the painful process of church discipline. It makes it necessary and beneficial. It, it's for, G, we could say this way, Jesus Christ needs it. Okay, and before you jump out of your chairs, get shocked at me saying that, because Jesus, Jesus is God. He can do anything. He has all power. He can heal the blind. He can raise the dead. How can we say that Jesus Christ needs something? Because Jesus has set up his work to be a process, and the tool that he uses for his work of saving people from sins and forgiving them, we, we have a name for that. We call it the gospel. Jesus uses the gospel. So I'm saying it in that sense, that Jesus needs the gospel because he's chosen to use it. He's chosen the gospel. Paul writes in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Right? So the, the power at work to conquer sin is the gospel. That's the means of grace, the means to save. And Jesus employs that gospel to save people from sin. So, the, the painful process of church discipline is hard and it's tough, but it's loving and it's filled with the gospel promises that, that rescue people from sin. So when we say that church can be a pain, here's the interesting thought. It's not just the fact that there's sin in a church that can make it painful and hard, but it can be even harder when the church causes pain. But they can do that in a good way. Causing pain is not always a bad thing. Sometimes causing pain is a reaction to pain that already exists. Here's an example. Oh, I'm, oh my back is sore. I don't know. And I'm at work, I, I'm trying to lift boxes, and it hurts, and walking up steps is sore. And I go to the doctor, and I say, yeah, doc, my back is sore. I have pain in my back. He says... The test, right, the end of the day, he says, Pastor Darren, here's what you need for that pain. You need to experience more pain and go to Camp Gladiator and have them work you out for an hour every morning, four times a week. That's a pain. You get back from that and you're sore, right? That, but it's chosen soreness, or you might call it purposeful pain. That's the painful process of church discipline. When we, when, we, when we help someone as a coach, as a trainer would help someone at Camp Gladiator, and you deal with the pain, sometimes by instilling pain itself. So, so Paul wrote previously about this sinful man in Corinth. Here's what he wrote. This is pain. He told the church, hand this man over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved. That's 1 Corinthians 5. 
Hand him over to Satan, Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians. Now, I thought the whole goal was to keep people from Satan. Now, Paul is saying, hand him over to Satan. What does that mean? That means, let him understand that his sinful behavior is causing him to be in a very dangerous position, so dangerously close to Satan that he's in the danger of hell. And let the fires of hell burn his backside so he can feel the heat. And when he does, we pray to God that he says, I don't want that. That's what that means, hand him over to Satan. Ultimately, there's a term for that in the church discipline process. When we tell someone, if you continue on this path and this belief, you're going to hell. I've not said that to many people in my life. As a matter of fact, I've said it to three church members, and my knees were shaking every time I said it. It was a very serious sin, a very serious, long, drawn-out process, which then ended up by me saying, if you continue in this way, you're going to hell. Not, I don't say that a lot. It's hard for me to say right up here. But, uh, and and those case, there's cases where that works, and the person realizes how serious that is. So that's what that means. Um, that ultimately, at the end of the church discipline process, if the person doesn't listen, we call that excommunication. The person is excommunicated from the church. That's a legitimate church practice. Some of you might associate that with the Roman Catholic Church, hearing that, but that's a, that's a practice in other Christian churches, including the Lutheran Church, excommunication. The goal is to bring them back. Hand him over to Satan, Paul said, so that his spirit may be saved. That's the goal through the process. All right, I want to wrap this up by talking about two final realities of the church discipline process, and one of them is this. The, the motive and the mission from the beginning, from the start, all the way through into the end is not to exact punishment on someone, is not to make someone feel cruddy, right? The whole goal is one of, it, of tough love, and tough love is performed with deep love and joy, all right? Paul writes this in verses 3 and 4, I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, he writes. For I wrote you out of great distress, anguish of heart, these pain words with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love. For See, he's talking about joy and love. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus enjoy his pain and suffering? Dying on the cross, being beaten, spit on, mocked crucified, dying. Did Jesus love it that he was betrayed by close friends, sentenced unjustly, asked to suffer what he never, ever deserved? Was that joy and love for Jesus? Yes or no? Yes. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Joy. Joy was leading the way 
and Jesus was joyful in it. It was a different kind of joy than a, than a fluffy joy or than even a fun joy. Was, was it fun for Jesus? I would say no way. That wasn't fun. But it was the joy, like the joy of being fulfilled after a hard day's work, sweat, and maybe tears, and maybe blood. Joy of fulfillment of a heart. Like the joy of, of studying so hard for finals and getting some good grades, right? There's joy in that. It's hard, it's difficult, it's tough. Jesus was filled with joy and love as he endured the cross, the pain and suffering, and he didn't shrink back. He didn't pull away, but he, he entered it with joy and love so that we would be saved from our sins and be forgiven. Uh, so the Corinthian case ended up to be a case of successful church discipline. The man repented. The man returned. The fires of hell got so close to him, and he got scared, and he ran to the gospel promises of Jesus, and there, it produced a harvest of righteousness. So Paul can write in verses 6 through 8, what now? The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient, right? Paul's saying, that's it. No more discipline. That it's enough. We're done. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, right? Don't rub it in. Don't give him a name that makes fun of what he did and call him that name anymore. Don't look on him as someone who is a perpetrator of some, because he's forgiven, right? That's what he's saying. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And the church was one, and Jesus Christ and the gospel won the day. And the practice of church discipline worked. As long as there are churches on this earth, there's going to be sinners in those churches and there's going to be sin and there's going to be pain, including in this church. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular right now, but it's just true because of what the Bible says and because of who we are. And, and I can be just as guilty as any of you can. As long as there's churches on this earth, Satan is going to be at work. Martin Luther said, when God builds a church, Satan builds a tavern right next door. Uh, Satan is hardest at work, not out there, but in here, among us, in your heart, because he knows the gospel is hardest at work in here, and so he has to resist it. He has to, he has to uh, frustrate it. He has to make it confusing and deceiving. And so let me say this. As a church, our greatest enemy is not out there. Our greatest enemy is not a, 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 an interpretation or a bias or some kind of platform in the world of politics. It's not what the government is or is not doing. It's not what the city of Pflugerville is or is not permitting in our building project process. It's not the, the, the low morality of the world out there. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, it's hard to be a church today. The greatest enemy of the church is not out there, but is in here. And if we don't get that, if we don't understand that, then he's going to get us. Wherever there is a church on earth, 
Satan is going to be hard at work. But I tell you this, wherever there is a church on earth, there's someone else hard at work too. Wherever there is a church here on this earth, Jesus Christ is at work with his gospel promises and he overpowers Satan. Satan's the prince of this world, Jesus is the king. And so let our focus, when, when, we, when we admit sin and understand that it can be a pain, that it's a problem, and that people can be hard to get along with, and people can sin against you or you can sin against them, let's put the process in place, let's use it with love and joy, and let's understand that that process is a win, it's a success, because Jesus Christ is at work here. Let's go to work. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult subject, uh, but it's good for us to handle these things because sometimes they're just the elephant in the room. We don't want to talk about them. We don't want to admit that there's sin and that there's ugliness, even in churches, but we do that today, Father, because we, we as a church are like that Corinthian church. No, no worse, no better. We thank you for the guidance of God's Word today, for the ministry and mission of the Apostle Paul for your spiritual giftedness that you gave to him that now guides us. Oh, Father, help us to, to realize that there is sin in this place, but to not be scared, to not be overwhelmed, to know that you promise your forgiveness and to live in your grace as individuals and as a church. Help us to be a beacon of your forgiveness and your mercy to our community, to our neighbors here in Pflugerville, to the people moving in, who don't know you, who don't have a church, and who, who, who may not think that the church is the best place for them. Help us to witness to them your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.